Good morning, fellowship. Would you stand with us and let's worship the Lord together.
with us this morning. Two weeks ago, on New Year's Day, I introduced you to a young man named Brock Purdy. Some of you are saying, do we have church on New Year's Day? Yes, we had church on New Year's Day. And we introduced you to Brock Purdy, and he was the last pick in the 2021 draft. He was, and it's his, his, the title they gave him was Mr. Irrelevant. He became the third string quarterback on the San Francisco 49ers. Well, Mr. Irrelevant, because the other two quarterbacks got hurt, just became one of the few rookie starters to ever make a 5-0 and start. Pretty incredible, isn't it? And if you're here today and you feel like you are Mr. or Mrs. Irrelevant, I just want to tell you, you're in the right place this morning. Because we want to help you get connected with God. You're created to be connected with God and connected with others. And this is a great time of year to do that. I want to ask you to do two things. One is stop by the booth in the middle of the foyer. Let us get to know you. Let us uh, get you connected. Also, next week, immediately following each of our services, we'll have a newcomer's gathering, a newcomer's social, just across the foyer in the Family Center Auditorium. We'll just answer any questions you have. We would love the opportunity to get you connected here at Fellowship. Also going on, community groups. We would love to get you connected into a community group. If you've been around for a long time or just a short time, we want to get you connected into community groups. And most of our groups are studying the book, this book, the Esther Daniel book. So we'll be studying through the book of Esther and Daniel until just before Easter. So pick you up one of these books in the foyer and jump in a community group. You can scan that QR code. You can stop by the booth in the center of the foyer. We'll get you connected. Matter of fact, everything I'm talking about this morning fellowshiprogers.org forward slash news. You can hear about everything that we're talking about here this morning. Um, Also, we've commissioned some of our artists through our Spectra Art Ministry to um, do some artwork for our Esther and our Daniel series, and that artwork is in the foyer, so stop by and look at it this morning. They're really talented people just helping us um, worship through art. And then lastly this morning, we are a church that loves marriage. And if you're interested in this, next weekend, next Sunday, our re-engage ministry starts off. There's only 10 spots left. And so if you're interested in that, go home today and sign up because it's almost full. But if you're interested, um, you, you, maybe your marriage needs some help, or maybe it just needs a tune-up, or maybe you just want to spend some time having fun with other families, couples at the church, and um, we would love to have you do that. Just sign up, again, the same way through uh, scanning that QR code or going to fellowshiprogers.org forward slash news. A lot of things going on. This is a great time of year to get connected at Fellowship. Today, or this weekend actually, um, we, our ninth and 10th graders are at a, a retreat called Chill Out. They're over in Salem Springs right now, or just outside of Salem Springs at New Life Ranch. And if you were here two weeks ago in the service, you heard a young man named Zach Lewandowski shared about how he came to Christ because someone whose family attended Fellowship invited him and he ended up at Chill Out and he prayed to receive Christ. And so could we start off our morning this morning just praying for those uh, between three and 400 students over there, the ninth and 10th graders. You can remember ninth and 10th grade, can't you? 
It's a challenging time of life. We want to see students come to know the Lord, students step up and step out spiritually. So let's pray for them this morning as we begin our service. Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather here together and worship you. And Lord, we pray for the students right now at Chill Out, the ninth and 10th graders. We pray that as your Holy Spirit is moving in the hearts of those children, we pray that those who don't know you would, would, would be drawn to you, whether it's this weekend or in the future. Lord, we thank you for the leaders, the student leaders, the adult leaders who've taken a weekend to go serve. And Lord, we just pray for blessing upon blessing. We pray for just safe travels home. And Lord, would you help us, just like we ask you to help them engage you this morning. and sing together. Redeemer. 
Place our trust in Him this morning. Savior Jesus, 
our trust in you this morning as we have sung that you are the Lion of Judah that you are the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world that you hold the whole world in your hands and so we can trust you but God we acknowledge that it's hard to always trust in your ways and so this morning we come to you with open hands and we come to you with hearts ready to receive your word. May we lean not on our own understanding, but trust in you. And you will make straight our paths. And so we love you, we trust you, and we praise your name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, fellowship. Hey, we're excited you're here. Obviously, I'm excited you're here. I bounced out here a song early. As many of you saw, and I pulled a quick one on you, I actually walked over to Kyle, our bassist, and I acted like I was telling him a secret. And none of you knew what was happening. But I'm excited to be here. We're going to keep going in Esther 4. So just open up your Bibles. If you got your Bible, open up to Esther 4. That's where we're going to be at this morning. If you were here last week, Nick Rowland, he decided not just to teach Esther 1 through 3. He started at Genesis, taught to Esther, recapped the New Testament, and did it in about 98 minutes. And so, because of all that was covered and everything that happened, I'm going to give us a quick refresher. Let's go ahead. Let's run through chapters 1 through 3 of Esther, and let's just kind of figure out what's going on before we jump into chapter 4. This book starts off, and there's a king. His name is Xerxes, and Xerxes decides to throw a party. It's this big party. He's going to display himself and his wealth to everyone throughout the empire, and hopefully by doing so is earning some loyalty come times of war. And during this party, he and his buddies, the other royals, they get so drunk that at one point, he decides to command his queen Vashti to come in and display her beauty to him and his friends. And we're all adults here, so we kind of understand what's going on. Xerxes wasn't asking Vashti to show off the new dress that she just bought. And when she says no and refuses, this enrages the king. And the king and all of his friends are so angry. In fact, his friends who are with him say, hey, Vashti hasn't just wronged you. She's wronged every man in the empire. Because now what's going to happen is that every wife is going to think that she can say no to her husband. And so in this drunken stupor, these men come up with the idea that because of what Vashti has done, she needs to be dismissed as queen. And so the king says, you're no longer queen. 
strips her of that title. And then they have another horrible idea. They decide that they need to find a queen. And so all those guys sitting there come up with the best way of finding a new queen. And they decide that they're going to begin a search for this queen. And the search is going to find, involve looking for the most beautiful young virgins. Again, this is, this is way different than how VeggieTales describes how Esther was found. And we can see what's good. This isn't a talent show, all right? We see what's happening. But this is how the king, the wise king, the ruler of the empire, says that he's going to find a new queen. As they go out on a search looking for the most beautiful young virgins. And then each night, a new girl will sleep with the king, and whoever pleases him most, he'll name queen. Well, it so happens that Esther is the one who is chosen. She pleases Xerxes the most, and so she is named queen of the empire. And it's after this moment that we're introduced to a subplot in the story. Now that Esther is queen, we, we divert our attention elsewhere. And what happens is Mordecai, who is the cousin of Esther, hears of a plot to kill Xerxes. And he tells Esther what's going on. The plot is foiled. The king is saved. And we would think that Mordecai would then be elevated and, and put in a high position but there's a little bit of a different turn. No, it isn't Mordecai who's elevated. It's an evil man named Haman. And Haman is promoted. The audience is left going, wait, I thought this should be Mordecai's place. No, it's Haman's spot. Haman is elevated. Mordecai won't bow to Haman. And this makes that man so mad. Haman is so angry that Mordecai won't bow to him that he decides he's not just going to kill Haman. He's going to have every Jew within the empire murdered one year from that day. And so he goes and he buys the king. He pays the king off, says, hey, there's a people group within your empire that are a danger to us. It would be better for them to be dead. Here's a lump sum of money. Now can I go kill them all? And the king, in his wisdom, says, sure, and writes a decree and sends it out. This is the story of Esther. This is where we find ourselves. It's not a kid's story. It's a heinous, outrageous story filled with sin and disgusting corruption. It's miserable when you're reading it up to this point. In fact, it's so, it's so gross. I, I actually had somebody who asked me the other week, they said, how is the story of Esther in the word of God if in the story of Esther the sins aren't directly condemned by God? And I went, well, that, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Maybe a little bit of a product of our culture today, but still interesting that, that this person would say, how is it possible that the story of Esther is, is unembarrassedly or unashamedly in the word of God if the sins that are there aren't condemned by God? And I'd answer that in two ways. The first is this. I'd say, well, let's, let's read the rest of Scripture because elsewhere we see all of these sins condemned. But secondly, I would point out Esther is a story. It's not a didactic text that tells us right from wrong. It's not a story. We, we almost want it to produce moralism where we just know what's right and we can not do what's wrong. That's not what this is. No, Esther is a story that tells us about who God is and how he works. It's a story that tells us who God is. He's a God who isn't afraid of our sin. He doesn't turn a blind eye to it. He doesn't run away from it. And it's a story that tells us how God works that he's willing to insert himself into human history to work on our behalf. You see, we have a God who works 
for humans and works through humans. And that's what Esther wants us to, the story of Esther wants us to see. And, you know, we kind of read some of these things that are going on, a beauty pageant, a king that's crazy, and we go, ah, this doesn't really apply to our life. But I think when we look past the outworking of the story and maybe to the root of what's causing these events, the root sins, like pride and debauchery, misogyny, betrayal, sexual immorality, murder, and revenge, when we begin to look at the sins that are present within this story, it actually sounds like a normal week in Northwest Arkansas. And so it'd probably be worth us tuning in to Esther because I think the story of Esther has something to tell us about who God is today and how he works today. So open up. You're at, you're, you're at chapter four. We're going to jump in. I'm going to put every single verse of this chapter up on the screen for you so you can follow along. But let me give you a little preface. The first three verses kind of set the scene. And then after this, verses four through 17 are a back and forth conversation between Mordecai and Esther. There's an intermediary that helps have that conversation, Hathak. But basically what's happening is the whole time this is a chapter about a conversation between our two characters, Mordecai and Esther. Chapter four starts off and it says that Mordecai has heard what's happened. He's heard that Haman has been approved to have his decree sent out to the entire nation that every Jew a year from now will be put to death. And upon hearing this, Mordecai rips his clothes, he puts on sackcloth, he covers himself in ashes, and he runs to the entrance of the king's gate. He can't go in because you're not allowed inside the king's gate wearing sackcloth, and there he begins to mourn. And in fact, it isn't just Mordecai who is mourning. It actually tells us that everywhere throughout the province where the decree had reached the people, there was a great mourning. They began to fast and weep and lament because they knew what was happening. Well, Esther gets word of this. Esther hears that Mordecai is out weeping, and so she actually sends garments to him. And she tries to give Mordecai new clothes. And I'm not sure what she's thinking. I, I really don't know if, if Esther is just so removed from the situation because she's living in the palace now that she doesn't know this decree has been sent out. And so she's just trying to kind of quiet Mordecai by sending him clothes. Or if she wants to talk to him. And she knows that he needs to put on these new garments in order to, to enter the king's gate and she wants to go out and meet him. But either way, she sends him garments and Mordecai rejects them. And he doesn't just reject the garments that were sent to him. He actually sends back a message to Esther. And he begins to tell her all that's happening. He, he, he says, here's the decree that's been sent. And he doesn't even just tell her what's going on. He actually says the exact sum of money that Haman paid the king in order to have the decree sent out. Mordecai wants Esther to hear what's going on. But he doesn't just want her to hear what's going on. Actually, in verse 8, we see that he wants her to see what's going on. Because he also sends a, a written copy of this decree to her. That she might look at it, she might hold it, she might feel the gravity of the situation. And that that decree would be explained to her as she looks at it. Mordecai wants her to hear what's happening, he wants her to see what's happening. And verse 8 also tells us that he wants to tell her something. He sends a command back to the queen. Mordecai, the cousin who raised Esther, is now commanding Queen Esther to do something. And he says, I want you to go before the king and I want you to plead on behalf of the people. I want you to go to the king's face 
and I want you to try and do something. Have this law taken away. Have a new law written. We need you to do something that would save us. It's a big request. And so Esther hears what Mordecai has said. Go to the king. Plead on our behalf. And what does she do? She says, you're crazy. I can't do that. And she begins to go in this explanation of saying, look, everyone, all the king's servants, in all the provinces, all the people know that if anyone goes into the king's inner court without being requested, there is but one law, that that person be put to death. Unless, of course, the king extends his golden scepter to her. But, but as for me, Esther says, I haven't even been called to the king for 30 days. Mordecai asks Esther to go to the king and plead on behalf of the Jewish people. And she goes, you're, you're, this is nuts. I'm not doing that because we all know how the law works. And so I, I think it would be helpful for us maybe to put away our modern or, or semi-modern, if that's even a correct way of calling it, idea of, of royalty. You see, Esther and Xerxes didn't really have a relationship. We know how this thing started. We even see how it ended for Vashti. The queen wasn't really a ruling position. It was more of a position to please the king. And the king is not wise. He doesn't think. He's a, he, he just throws everything out. He threw Vashti out. And so when, when Esther hears Mordecai say, hey, I want you to go to the king and plead on our behalf, and she knows that that's pretty much certain death, that there's a law against that, you could imagine the fear and the insecurities that are welling up inside of her. You want me to do what? You know that's against the law. You know the king is crazy. You saw how he treated Vashti. And guess what? He's treating me the same way. He hasn't even called me into the inner circle for, for 30 days. And I know he's not sleeping alone. He's calling some other girl's name each and every night. Va or Esther is sitting here going, there is no way that I'm going and I'm going to go talk to the king. She sends that back. And this is where it begins to get real. Because Mordecai has another response. And I want us to look at this where he gives one response, but it, but it kind of comes across in three parts. And so what I want us to do is I want us to look at each one of those parts individually. Esther says, you're crazy, I'm not going to the king. And Mordecai responds back and he says this, do not think to yourself that, the, uh, that you in the king's palace will escape any more than all the other Jews. Mordecai just kind of shoots her straight. He goes, look, if you hide, you're gonna die. You're right, the king is crazy. And so as soon as he finds out, if you try and continue to hide your Jewish identity, as soon as he finds out that you're a Jew, you will be killed as well. And after telling Esther that she will die, he continues. And he says, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance, it, it will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And you know, this is where I think it starts to get really interesting because there's some debate on what Mordecai is actually saying here. There's actually primarily two camps of thought. We'll call it Camp A and Camp B on what Mordecai is doing here at the beginning of verse 14. Camp A actually thinks that right now this is the first time that Mordecai is making a reference to Yahweh. 
that, that he is alluding to God, specifically when it says another place. There's some extra biblical writing that talks about Yahweh using the term another place. And so when the audience is reading this, some scholars think that the audience would have heard Mordecai saying, look, you can keep silent if you want. You're gonna die if you do so. But no matter what happens, Yahweh is a God who keeps his promises and he will find some other way to rescue the Jews. It's a really compelling argument. It makes a lot of sense. That's Camp A's thought. Camp B actually would look at this and say that Mordecai isn't referencing God yet. That this beginning of his response in verse 14 is not him alluding to God when he says another place. In fact, Camp B thinks that this is a rhetorical question. They look at the original languages and they, language and they go, oh yeah, this is actually a rhetorical question that would have emphatically been answered with a no. And Mordecai would be trying to get Esther to realize there is no other way that God's gonna come through for his people other than you. So let me, if, if, let me see if I can read this with a, in a rhetorical question. It would almost be like, like Mordecai is saying, For if you keep silent at this time, will relief and deliverance rise for the Jews from another place? No, of course not. And you and your father's house will perish too. You see, Camp B thinks that Mordecai hasn't yet referenced God, and he's building up the point that the only way God is going to work is through Esther. And you can land wherever you want, because both camps agree with what happens at the last line that Mordecai gives And that is a direct acknowledgement and trust in the divine providence of God when he says, and who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Woo, that's a good line. This guy should be a negotiator. I mean, listen to what, what he's saying. Hey, who knows whether or not, Esther, you have been brought by God to the place that you're in to begin to act on behalf of God for the good of the people. This is the first time we see Mordecai do this. It's a flip in his character. The whole story up until this point, you look at him and you go, this man really isn't a faithful practicing Jew. And yet here he comes to the end of his rope. And he begins to put his trust in God because what's happening is whichever camp you land in, we see Mordecai making an acknowledgement of the providence of God. Mordecai is saying there's an intersection between divine providence and the responsibility of humanity. And he's looking at Esther and saying, maybe God and his providence has brought you to where you're at so that you can begin to take responsibility. And that's how God is gonna work through this situation. And when Esther hears this, she looks at him or she she responds back to Mordecai. And she says, go and gather the Jews. Go and gather the Jews throughout Susa. I want you to hold a fast on my behalf. Three days, three nights. And I'm gonna gather the young women and we're gonna do the exact same thing. And when we're done fasting, then I'm gonna go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. You wanna talk about an amazing line. Mordecai has this moment where his character just goes from faithlessness to faithfulness and all of a sudden, Esther does the exact same thing. She takes on this attitude, not saying, oh, I'll die, but she actually says, if I have to die, then I'm willing to die. 
She takes on this amazing character of trust, an attitude of sacrifice and selflessness. I mean, these are heroes of the faith that we should be looking at. I want my life to have a trust in Yahweh that I would be willing to say, if I have to die, then I'll die. And that's exactly what Esther does here. She's called to trust by Mordecai. She responds in trust. And then verse 17 says, Mordecai went away. He did everything as Esther had ordered him. And that's where the chapter ends. It starts off with genocide and mourning, and it ends with a plan. You see, we take our students through uh, Esther each year, actually. Our, our FSM students in 10th grade, they have an Esther curriculum. And so if you're in a community group and you're complaining about not knowing what to do, just know 10th graders go through this each year, and they're figuring it out. But our 10th graders go through it, and last year, Chance Kane actually came up with an acronym that we use in that, in that curriculum, and it's RISE. RISE. It stands for Royalty, Intercession, salvation, and execution. And it's an incredible way for you to remember what is happening in the book of Esther up until this point. Because what we see is that Esther is the queen. She's the royalty who's interceding for the salvation of the Jewish people by the risk of her execution. So if you want to have a conversation, if you're trying to figure out, how do I know what's actually going on in Esther? How do I follow this soap opera? Rise. Royalty, intercession, salvation, execution. But more than this acronym just helps us remember what's going on in the story of Esther, I actually think it points out to us a pattern that God uses. Because Esther isn't the only royalty within Scripture that intercedes for a people group in their salvation through execution, right? And we know where I'm going with this. Jesus does this. Jesus is the true king, the true royal one who intercedes to the Father for the salvation not of just the Jewish people but all of humanity by not risk of his execution but by his execution. And so as we're reading Esther all the way up and through chapter 4, man, we should be overwhelmed with how faithful Esther and Mordecai are now. Like we should, we should look at them, be proud of them, encouraged, inspired by them, but even more so, we should be filled with an amazing amount of gratitude, thanks, and worship to Jesus. That he's the true king, the true intercessor, the true savior, the true sacrificial lamb who was executed and overcame that execution for our benefit. That's what we should see. We read chapter four, we see Esther say, if I perish, I perish. And alarms should be going off, ding, 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 in our head. Because we should be going, wait, this points to Jesus. We should be able to see that, wait, this actually points out who the true Savior is. And we should be worshiping him. But I'm going to throw a wrench in it. Because you see, the original audience, they, they wouldn't have seen Jesus. They, they wouldn't have read chapter 4 in the faith of Esther and gone, oh, I see it. She's a signpost to the better Esther, to Jesus. Why, why would the original audience not have known to look to Jesus? Because he wasn't born yet. They didn't know who he was. They didn't know a Messiah would come and die on a tree yet. They, 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 they didn't live on the side of the incarnation and crucifixion and resurrection that we do. And so what would the original audience have done with this? 
Well, where we take Mordecai and Esther and we look at these famous last words that they have here in the chapter, for such a time as this, and if I have to perish, then I'll perish. We look at those lines and we make them heroes of the faith. And let me clarify, that's a good thing. They absolutely are. I think we should be mesmerized by their faith. But at the same time, the original audience, I don't think, would have so easily done that. Because they probably would have looked at Esther and Mordecai, and they would have asked the question, why them? Why does Esther get to be a vessel of God's grace for the Jewish people? Why is God choosing to use Mordecai? Because the original audience would have looked at these two characters and not been, oh, those are faithful people. They would have looked at them and said, they have not been faithful practicing Jews. Why is God using them? And they would have had a list of reasons, some of which being Mordecai and Esther could have gone home if they wanted to. They could have gone to Jerusalem where God had called his people to be, but they didn't. And not only that, It's kind of cool. This is happening in and around Passover. Maybe the day that Mordecai is mourning is the day before or the day of Passover. And yet neither him nor the queen, who I'm imagining had some travel rights, has gone back to Jerusalem to celebrate the most, one of the most important meals and holidays in the Jewish faith. And not only that, but Esther has concealed her faith, this whole story, this whole time, hiding what she believes and who she is so that she won't be found out. You see, the original audience would have looked at these two and probably asked, why them? And that's exactly the point, the faithlessness that turns to faithfulness in a few verses, in an instance, is the point. Because it illustrates to us as the audience exactly who God is and how he works. That he's a God who loves the people and loves his people through his people, that he wants to use his people. That question, why them? You know, it's actually a question I think we ask a lot. You see, we see what God is doing, and we like it. And then we see who God is doing it through, and we begin to go, really? Them? Why is God using her? I I remember what she's like. God's going to use him? Oh, I remember him in college. And we begin to act like someone's past is a good indicator of God's ability to use them in the future. But the story of Esther eradicates that thinking because it tells us that God is patient and loves us and that he wants to use us. When, when we ask that question, why then, I hope, we're, I hope we're convicted and I hope the Holy Spirit turns it on us and has us ask the question, why me? Why me? Why would you use me, Father? Why would you be patient to walk with me? I know my sinfulness. I know my faithlessness. I know my mistakes. But the answer to why me is the same to the answer is why them? Because it's who God is and it's how he works. God rescues people through his people. God works by calling humans into works. There is an intersection between the providence of God and the responsibility of humanity. God offers grace, but he calls us to grit. It's who he is, it's how he works. It's the story of Esther. So what do we do with that? What do we do with the fact that God is a God who calls people independent of where they are because he wants to bring them to where he is? It's so good, it's so simple. It's hard to act out. What we do is we turn to him. 
We get to be people who just turn to him and trust him. Right where we're at, independent of where we've been, we get to be people who turn to the living God, just like Mordecai and Esther did. In a moment, they began to say, no, we see the provision of God, we see the providence of God, we're gonna trust God, and we're gonna take the steps he calls us to. But you know, I think one of the biggest almost blocks that we have to turning to God is the lies that we believe. We're just overrun with these lies that we're too sinful, that we're too far off. We start to think that the mistakes that we've made are too big. If God really knew what I've done, if he knew how much I've hurt my family, if he knew how much I've run from him or all the things that I've thought, there's no way God could forgive me. But look at Mordecai. As soon as he put trust in the Lord, the Lord was right there. Or we think the lie that we're just too far off. We've been wayward for so long. I've been living in sin for so long. What difference would it make to turn now? If I turned, I'd be so distanced from the Lord, he wouldn't even be able to grab me. But look at Esther. She concealed her identity for her life in the moment that she put her trust in God. He was right there by her side. You see, we get to turn to God, and the way that we turn to God is by turning away from the lies. The lies that you're too far off, you're too far gone. You're too distanced, too damaged, too unforgivable, too dirty, too corrupt, too impure, too lost, too alone, too unknown. We get to reject those. And the reason that I think we get to reject those lies is because I'm convinced. I'm convinced of what Esther will be convinced of. I'm convinced of what the early church was convinced of. I'm convinced of what Paul is. We can turn away from the lies and trust that we can trust God because I'm convinced that neither life nor death, neither angels nor demons, nor any power, the present or future, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus your Lord, amen? You're not too far to turn from God. And the reason you're not too far to turn from God is because God hasn't turned from you. He hasn't given up on you even if you've given up on yourself. He hasn't forgotten you even if you've forgotten who he's called you to be. Because that's who God is. He's a God who has a plan and the plans of God always involve the people of God. Fellowship, could this be us? A people who turn to him. Despite the faithlessness of our past where we choose to be faithful in the present that we would accept the grace of God, walk with grit knowing that he wants to work in and through us.
you stand and sing this together?
just saying is true, that your arms are strong enough to carry us through every season, through the darkest valley, through the highest mountaintops. We trust in you. We've declared that we will build our lives on your love. So as we leave this place, God, would you lead us in your love to those around us? May we walk by your spirit, trusting in who you are and who you've called us to be. We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name.